I think you know, there's lots of brain health myths out there. How does food impact your brain and your mental health? This is the Best You Podcast. My name is Nick Carrier, and I'm an entrepreneur and fitness trainer who has coached over 500 people through my program, The 10-Week Transformation. My mission is to make living a healthy lifestyle simple so you can look and feel like your best you. Today, you guys are going to learn a ton from Dr. Georgia E. Dr. Eid is a Harvard-trained, board-certified psychiatrist specializing in nutritional and metabolic psychiatry. Y'all, don't miss this one. What you eat impacts your mental health. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And Dr. Georgia Eid is here to explain to you why. I mean, we often just look at food from the standpoint of how is this going to impact the way that we look or how is it going to impact the number on the scale? But food is so much more than that. I mean, seemingly healthy individuals receive out of the blue diagnoses all the time that are oftentimes preventable if you just know what to pay attention to and you know what numbers to look at under the hood. It's not always just a matter of bad luck. Dr. Georgia Ede will tell you about how to eat for your mental health and for your brain health so you can live a long and vibrant life and not lose your memory. And she has a brand new book called Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind. And y'all, this book is spectacular. The science in it is deep, it's thorough, and then she gets super practical. Go pick this book up ASAP if you're concerned with optimizing your brain health, which every single one of you should be. Now, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure you hit the follow button. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to hit subscribe. But for now, it's time to get closer and closer to your best you with Dr. Georgia E. All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Best You Podcast. Today, I am so excited. I've been looking forward to this interview all day over the last couple of weeks, ever since we booked it. But today, I've got the one and only Dr. Georgia Ede with us today. And Georgia, I know you're a believer in that what we eat is by far the most important factor in our both our mental and physical health, and I definitely agree with that. Um, and I know you're obviously an expert on brain health, so I want to start off by getting pretty practical right away to give people what they want, and then we'll kind of take a step back and dive into a little bit of the science and some of the other kind of nitty gritty information as well. But to get right to some practical stuff that I know a lot of people want, if you are making a change right now and you are wanting to improve your eating habit, eating habits purely for the sake of improving your brain health, then what are three things that you would eat more of? And then on the flip side, what are three things that you would not eat or at least eat less of? Oh, what an interesting question. Okay, so three things, we, well, it depends on how much you're already eating now, but if you're not already eating enough uh, protein, especially animal source proteins, which are the most complete and most uh, nourishing uh, sources of protein, then you wanna make sure you're getting at least some animal protein in your diet or supplementing extremely carefully, which we're not even sure is is uh, uh, you know is gonna be quite as good, but so for optimal brain health, I do recommend including some animal foods in the diet. So if you're not eating enough, you want to eat a little bit more of those. Uh, you also, uh, you know, three things I want to be eating more of. Um, if you're, it's an interesting, I've never really thought about it like this. I'm, yeah. more, I'm more of a be careful what... Be, I'm more of a, um, be careful that you're not eating certain things. I'm mm -hmm. more of a power of subtraction person than a power yeah. of addition person. And I think, you know, there's lots of brain health myths out there about what kinds of special foods you can add to your diet. 
to make it brain healthier, these superfoods and so forth. And uh, what I really like to emphasize for people is that um, it's, it's, there's a lot more power in taking certain common foods out than mm. to add more of a you know, particular type of special food. So as long as you're getting enough nourishing uh, uh, whole foods, including some animal foods, that's great. Um, and then your second question, I think, is more in my wheelhouse, maybe, which yeah. is, you know, what are the things that you want to make sure you're eating less of? And that's a very easy one, because you really want to be avoiding the refined carbohydrates, uh, the refined seed oils, the vegetable oils, and all of the modern ultra-processed foods as much as you possibly can. So those three things are, uh, those are mm -hmm. easy targets. Well, they're they're simple, but they're not easy. I guess that yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's it's clear, and you know you know what that means. But it, like you said, it's it's sometimes a little harder to put into practice. Um, the the way way I want to go next is I think that a lot of people listening, when they are looking to optimize their health, you first have to become aware of where you currently stand in order to kind of optimize. And so we talked about some of the things that you want to avoid, but then the thing, the topics I want to get into is metabolic flexibility and insulin resistance, because I feel like learning where you stand when it comes to those two is a really good spot to place to start when it comes to understanding your metabolic health, potentially your brain health and stuff like that. So metabolic flexibility to try to keep it as simple as possible is essentially, if I understand correctly, is when your body is able to efficiently and effectively both use glucose for energy and fat for energy when you need it. And so for follow up question on that is why is that important to be able to be flexible and go back and forth? And then also, how do we know if we are metabolically flexible or not? Oh, these are great questions. So uh, I completely agree with you about your definition of metabolic flexibility, because there are two main sources of energy in the body. You know, we can use fat, which, you know, fatty acids and ketones. We can use glucose. And ideally, we're using a mixture of both and we're switching uh, back and forth the ratios. You know, it, it's unusual for us to be burning, you know, um, uh, we're usually burning a mixture of the two. So uh, in any case, uh why it's important to be metabolically flexible is because say, for example, you're trying to run your system entirely on carbohydrate. We can't store very much carbohydrate. So you will very quickly run out uh, of carbohydrate uh, and, and you, you're gonna want to be able to switch over to fat uh, so, that, um, so that your brain can get its energy needs met like overnight when you're not, eat, not able to eat starch and, re and refuel your, your carbohydrate stores. So, I mean, your body will make some glucose out of fat and protein, but it's going to need, uh, it's going to need to be supplemented with fat energy. So, so you want to be able to, your body wants to be able to switch back and forth depending on what's available. So if you're, if you're eating high carbohydrate meal, hopefully whole foods, carbohydrate meal, you'll, your body will switch to burning all of that glucose and using that glucose for energy. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you're metabolically healthy and flexible, but then when you're not eating between meals or you're going for a long run or you're sleeping uh, and you're not eating carbohydrate, hopefully in the middle of the night, it, it is nice for you to be able to then uh, kind of use your body as a hybrid engine and use a mixture of fuels and shift easily and comfortably uh, over to uh, burning more fat uh, and less carbohydrate to, to make sure all of your cells are getting their energy needs met. If you're not metabolically flexible, that transition is going to be uncomfortable. 
You're going to feel hungry. You're going to feel, um, you know, irritable. Uh, you're going to feel, you may even feel anxious, uh, lightheaded. You may have a lot of symptoms of so-called hypoglycemia, which you may not even actually, your glucose might even not be even going that low, but just that dropping glucose and, and then you're not able to dip into your fat stores quickly enough to replace that energy. So uh, metabolic flexibility is uh, really precious and we should be able to, as healthy human beings, switch back and forth easily. And children do this much better than adults. A lot of us have now lost a lot of our metabolic flexibility. So it's really hard for us to switch into fat burning mode. And of course, that's where a lot of us want to spend more of our time. Mm. So I know for me personally, if I go, if I'm doing a little bit of fasting and that might not be a crazy amount, but I think like 12 to 16 hours or something like that. I often find that sometimes when I'm at around 10 hours, 11 hours, give or take, I it is almost the most difficult part of it. And then once I get 12, 13, 14, all of a sudden it's like, wait, I'm not even hungry anymore. Is that like a sign of, okay, I've kind of switched over to using fat for energy. And then again, it's like, is that a good sign of, of metabolic flexibility, I guess? Yeah. So if you're good at switching over to fat, uh, what will happen is that you will naturally easily, without you really even thinking about it, be able to go a longer periods of time between meals without being uncomfortable or thinking about food. And that's a sign that your body is, uh, is able to easily burn fat. So it's really common for people to feel hungry. Let's say they're eating kind of a standard, a standard diet that has too much of the wrong types of foods in it. It's really, it's really uh, common for people to sort of get hungry at night. And then, uh, and then you've got two choices. You can either eat right before you go to bed, or you cannot eat right before you go to bed. And if you don't eat right before you go to bed, what's fascinating is almost you know, nine times out of 10, you'll wake up the next morning, not hungry. Mm. And that, that's because your body has shifted gears and is now taking care of, of, of that, that appetite you had with some fat, uh, fat from your own body stores. So uh, it's, it's, it's something that a lot of people, I think, who are listening will realize, oh, you know, if I get really hungry at 11 o'clock at night, why don't I wake up hungry the next morning? Shouldn't I be even hungrier? Uh, and it's because your body has taken care of that for you by dipping into your fat store. So if you're metabolically flexible, that is how it will feel. If you're not, you might wake up, you know, even in the middle of the night feeling like you need to eat something because you really can't comfortably switch, shift gears uh, in the middle of the night even. So I feel like a lot of metabolic flexibility or determining or assessing whether or not you are metabolically flexible is just kind of being aware of different biofeedback. Like you said, hungry, irritability, anxiousness, lightheaded, things like that, being hungry in the middle of the night. Are there any actual biomarkers or any actual like things that you can read or determine that will give you more evidence that you are or are not metabolically flexible, or is it mainly just off of kind of your own biofeedback that you're assessing from your body? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, the, the growing majority of us now have something called insulin resistance, uh, which I'm sure you know all about, uh, but in case some of your listeners don't know, uh, it, it's just a meta, it's a very, very common metabolic problem where we have lost some of our metabolic flexibility and we have, uh, We've lost some of our ability to to, to process uh, carbohydrates uh, efficiently and safely. So, uh, you know, more than half of us now have this condition. And so, if you 
if you have insulin resistance, it's very likely that you will be metabolically inflexible, mm -hmm. which means it will be really uncomfortable for you to go between, you know, go too long between meals. You know, you'll, you'll tend to get cravings. You might be irritable or hangry, you know, um, anxious, panicky, et cetera. So, uh, and that's, that's a real problem. So, uh, I think, and there are markers, there are bio, you're asking about biomarkers. There are biomarkers, really simple ones for insulin resistance. And these are things a lot of people can just even check for themselves at home without a doctor being involved. So for example, um, if your waist circumference is more than half your height, another marker is if you've had a cholesterol panel checked recently, which most of us have, uh, if your triglycerides are over 150 milligrams per deciliter and your HDL is really low, your so-called good cholesterol is too low, uh, below 40 for men, below 50 for women. So that's, uh, that's another sign of, of insulin resistance. And, or if your fasting insulin level is too high above 10, uh, or, uh, and so there, there are these, there are these certain markers you can use to figure out if you have insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance, it, it's very likely that you've lost some of your metabolic flexibility. Mm, mm. Well, let's go ahead and dive in to insulin resistance a little bit further. So again, to kind of preface it with a little bit of context for people to maybe gain some sort of understanding of insulin resistance. Again, we'll be, I'll be very much condensing uh, the definition and or description, but basically when you eat food, it depends on obviously what kind of food and the quality of it. But when you eat food, your glucose is glucose is entering the body and for your cells to be able to use that glucose and for glucose to be able to go into the cells, they need insulin to help transport it across the cellular membrane. So when you eat the pancreas is basically like, Hey, there's glucose in the body. Let's release some insulin so that you can transport, glu transport glucose into the cells. But then the more sugar that you eat or the more carbs that you eat, especially refined carbs, then your pancreas just continues to crank out more and more and more insulin. And so that leads to essentially excess insulin in the bloodstream. That's where I'm going to let you take it over from there. Like, why is that a bad thing to have that excess insulin in the bloodstream? And what kind of things does that cause inside our body? Yeah. So that's, that's, you described it beautifully. So insulin is a really important hormone. It's not a bad hormone. It's a good thing. We need it. It helps. It really tells our, all of our cells what to do with all of the food that we're eating. And it, it and more than that, uh, cause a lot of people think about insulin as a simple blood sugar regulating hormone, but it's actually a master hormone of growth and controls the levels and activity of lots of other hormones in the body. So it's really kind of an orchestrator or um, a conductor of metabolism. So you don't want your insulin levels to be sky high all the time. Uh, and, and that is what will happen if you're eating too many of the wrong carbohydrates too often and you develop some insulin resistance. What happens is if your insulin levels are running too high too often to keep your blood sugar under control, um, then uh, what's gonna happen is your cells are going to start to push back to protect themselves from being overstimulated by that insulin. They're gonna become insulin resistant. And so all of the things, all the important things that insulin is supposed to be telling cells to do, the cells aren't listening as well as they should. And, and one of the really fascinating things, I think to me as a psychiatrist, is how insulin resistance affects the brain. So in the brain, the brain needs glucose, uh, you know, really uh, depends a lot on glucose as one of its energy sources. So unlike the rest of the body, 
um, the, there's no insulin required to let glucose pass into the brain. Glucose waltzes into the brain, no questions asked. Um, the problem is that the more insulin resistant you become, the higher your insulin levels run, the uh, harder it becomes over time for insulin to cross into the brain. The brain becomes insulin resistant. And that's a huge problem because brain cells can't turn glucose into energy as well if they don't have enough insulin. So what you've got is you can have a brain swimming in a sea of glucose and still be slowly starving to death because the insulin is, is not high enough. So this is, we now understand that this is one of the root causes of a lot of mental health conditions, especially the science is very clear on this, Alzheimer's disease, which you know takes many, many, many years to develop. So this is why it's so important to uh, preserve your metabolic flexibility and get your insulin levels down through lifestyle changes to protect your brain for the rest of your life so that it will it will it will keep working at its best. Mm, that's great. And you go into great detail on a lot of this stuff in in the book uh, Change Your Diet, Change Your Mind that's coming out in January 30th and it's a it's a big book because it has so many so much great stuff in it so I haven't had the chance to finish it completely but I'm just kind of in the right in the thick of the Alzheimer's portion of it and I'm super intrigued about this topic and basically you talk about how I just kind of finished this part. You talk about how, like you said, there might be a lot of glucose. There might be a lot of sugar in the brain, but if you're insulin resistant, then there's low insulin in the brain and your brain needs that insulin to be able to use glucose. If not, there's just a bunch of excess glucose in the brain. And then you also talk about how it impacts the hippocampus almost first and how that is very the hippocampus is largely responsible for some like short-term memory and stuff like that. I just wanted you to run with that a little bit more on kind of why having low levels of insulin in the brain are bad and the negative impacts that it can have. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And thank you for, for uh, reading the book. I'm so glad you're, you're finding it interesting. Uh, and so, yes, this is exactly right. So, the whole brain, of course, needs needs energy, needs a high quality uh, fuel. Uh, it can burn it can burn glucose. Uh, it can burn uh, a mixture of glucose and ketones. Uh, so if you're burning more fat for energy, the liver will make ketones that can cross easily into the brain, just like glucose, and they can be burned. They can pick up some of that energy slack. They can bridge that gap. So uh, so the hippocampus is the brain's learning and memory center. It does other things too, but it's primarily your brain's, it's famous for being your brain's learning and memory center. And in order to make new memories and learn new things, you have to grow, connect cells in new ways and grow new pathways and grow new extensions of cells and connections. And that process, because insulin's a growth hormone, that process of growing new circuits and making new connections is uh, requires insulin. So the hippocampus is really, really sensitive to insulin deficits. If it doesn't have enough insulin to for the if it doesn't to to uh, to do the to make those new connections, it will be harder and harder for you to learn new things. And that's why um, short-term memory is the one of the first signs, one of the first hallmarks or warning signs of oncoming dementia, is because the hippocampus needs more energy uh, and more insulin to do its work than a lot of the other areas of the brain do. Mm. Man, that's fascinating. Um, 
I think I want to dive into kind of towards the back half here, the interview of how food impacts your mental health, because I know that's kind of like really how you got started in, in a lot of this is realizing how much what you put in your body, what you eat in fact, impacts your anxiety your depression your stress and everything like that and i know that a lot a lot of it is based off of kind of the amino acid profile and some and the food that you eat and then also how that impacts your neurotransmitters and everything like that so i want you to kind of run with how your how the food that you eat impacts things like stress anxiety depression mental health and through the context of like maybe the importance of amino acid profiles and, and neurotransmitters and things like that. I'll let you kind of take it and run with it a little bit from there. Sure. So food, the brain cares very much what you eat. And I, I, you know, I was never taught that in medical school or, or in four years of psychiatry training, we never talked about food in the brain, not once. Uh, so, but it makes a huge difference. The brain cares a lot about what you eat because, uh, and basically what, what the foods you eat need to do for the brain in order for a, a diet to be brain healthy, uh, that diet needs to nourish the brain with all of the essential nutrients. These are your, your raw materials, your building blocks for, for, the, for brain cells. It needs, to, it needs to protect the brain from damage. So there are damaging ingredients in the diet that need to be avoided if you're going to protect the brain from excess inflammation and something called oxidative stress, which is these, these are forces that physically damage the structure of the brain. And then it needs to energize the brain safely um, uh, in ways that will support healthy, flexible brain metabolism for, for, for the rest of your life. And all that really means is, you know, keeping your blood sugar and insulin levels in a healthy range, which uh, is easy to do if you know how to do it, but it's not what most people are doing, unfortunately. So um, to nourish the brain, like you said, you need all essential nutrients, including the full complement of essential amino acids, uh, which are just much more difficult to find in, in plant foods. And so this is one of the many reasons why it's so important to include at least some animal food in the diet. Uh, and so you need all of the nutrients, including all the amino acids, all the B vitamins, the uh, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, lots of lots of molecules, uh, all of your essential vitamins and minerals, as well as protein, high quality protein, and uh, and uh, the, the essential fatty acids. So these, making sure that your food is able to nourish your brain is really important. Making sure that it doesn't contain too many damaging ingredients, things especially like refined carbohydrates and seed oils like vegetable oils, and to keep your blood sugar and insulin levels in a healthy range. If you do all three of those things, your brain will be healthier than 95% of people around you. And, and it, it's really rather amazing how much better you can feel if you follow those really simple principles. Mm. Yeah, I, I love it. I, I think that one of the issues that so many of us have, especially even us health conscious people, one of the issues that we have is we look at food through the lens of just how it's going to impact our body weight or how our body looks. And we don't think about it from the standpoint of what our long-term metabolic health and brain health is gonna look like because it's very easy to be like, Oh, I'm not going to eat that much today, but, I, but I'm going to have a bowl of ice cream a little bit later on tonight, and tomorrow my weight's going to be the same, so it's not that big a deal. But it's like, no, you're actually, it's not just about weight, your, your body weight and how you look. There's so much more actually to it. 
I'm so glad you brought that up because that's exactly how I thought about food for until until my early 40s when I started learning about nutrition and the the really really powerful important connection between the quality of your diet, both the nutritional quality of the diet and the metabolic quality of your diet and brain health. I mean it's really a powerful connection. So and what you just said is so important. I mean I thought of food for more than 40 years as just a way to control my weight. And I think a lot of people think about it like that. Uh, and and the truth is, is that it's really uh, being healthy is about not more than vanity. It's really mostly about sanity, right? So what you really want is you want total health. You don't just want the scale to have a number on it that looks appealing to you. The good news is you you can have both. You don't have to give up one for the other if you if you understand what's important. The problem is if you only use the scale and the mirror to try to figure out if you're healthy, you're going to be missing a, some really important pieces of information because you can have a completely normal, healthy weight. You can be you can be fit. You can even be an elite athlete and you can still have insulin resistance and not know it. It's a, actually a very common issue. And so if you have silent, the silent, you know, undiagnosed insulin resistance, you're not going to recognize that you that you need to make some changes to your diet, even though you look and feel, uh, you know, even though you're looking and feeling fit and healthy and, and the scale looks good, right? So mm -hmm. this is really important. This is why uh, people all the time, all the time, every day, um, there are people dropping dead from heart attacks, being given diagnoses of cancer, being, you know, you know, given, uh, you know, the really bad news that there's early dementia that, that, that that's uh, uh, come upon them. And it takes them by surprise because they thought they were healthy. Their weight was normal. Their doctor said everything looked okay. But underneath there was this silent insulin resistance that over many years had been chipping away at their good mental and physical health without them realizing it. So if all you're looking at is your is your weight uh, and your shape in the mirror uh, and your cholesterol levels, uh, which are not very useful, um, you're going to be missing a really really important piece of the puzzle. And but if you understand how to test for insulin resistance, the the signs and symptoms, and if you understand how easy it is to address it within just a few weeks with dietary changes and other lifestyle changes, you can see these health catastrophes coming from a mile away and you can do something to turn that metabolic Titanic around mm -hmm. <laughs> relatively quickly. And this is what people really need to know. Um, I've had friends whose husbands have, I mean, I'm in my late fifties now, my, my friend's husbands are starting to die of heart attacks out of the blue. And, and, and it's a shock to their families. And these, these are largely completely preventable uh, problems if you know what to look for. Yeah. I'm so glad we were talking about this because I think that's why I wanted to bring it up because so many people say that, like they looked so healthy. It's like external look is not the same thing as internal look. There's, there's a whole, there's a whole, there's, it's so much different and health is so many more, it's so much more complex than that. So I'm almost, this is kind of a somewhat impossible question to answer probably just because there's not it's impossible to do a study on it, but if somebody is, you know, 40, 50, 60, maybe approaching 70 and, you know, maybe has been doing some bad habits for years on end, or maybe they haven't been doing optimal habits for years on end, 
how much do we believe that insulin resistance is reversible once you get to a certain point? Like if if I could see a 70-year-old listening to this being like, well, it's too late for me. I can't make any changes. I'll just see what happens. Like how how, how much is there the ability to maybe reverse some of this stuff? It is the one of the wonderful things about this uh, particular issue is that it is never too late. It is never too late to uh, to address insulin resistance. The extent to which you can completely reverse it, meaning that you can go back to eating, you know, uh, high amounts of carbohydrate once you've got a, a decent amount of metabolic damage, you may not be able to get that back, but you can get you can turn your health around by lowering those insulin levels and those glucose levels. And it really just takes a few weeks. My mother's 90 years old and she went back after many years away uh, from her diet. She went back on a low carbohydrate diet in January, February. Uh, she's lost over 30 pounds. Uh, wow. She had severe headaches that have, that have gone away. She was starting to have some difficulty concentrating, some depression. These things have all improved. They all improved very quickly, uh, really within a matter of weeks. Her appetite's beautifully managed. She's 90 years old. So I really, uh, and I have many patients that I've worked with in their 70s and 80s, uh, even some with early dementia, uh, some with very, you know, lifelong uh, problems uh, with, with weight, uh, you know, people with heart disease, people with um, you know, lifelong mental health problems, uh, depression, anxiety, where it, it, it the, age, the age of the person is not nearly as important as, as what they're willing to do to change their diet. And exercise is, of course, extremely important too, but you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. So I, I like to uh, tell people that, you know, when it comes to good metabolic health, which is the cornerstone of all health, physical and mental health, that diet is king and exercise is queen. Like you need both. You can't you can't do just one or the other and be optimally healthy. Mm, I love it. I love it. And I think that you also said in the book how you know a lot of the some of these diseases, some of these negative impacts are not necessarily a factor of age. It's just a factor of the fact that you've been doing the the bad habits for so long that it's just finally starting to kind of rear its head. And so people as you're getting older realize that it's not necessarily just a matter of age or a matter of time that these things are going to happen is no, it's just like the compounding interest of the bad habits stacked years over years, decades over decades is what leads to it. So you can, regardless of your age, improve your metabolic health and, and get to a place where you want to be. And I think that's, it's so cool that you just talk about how Honestly, for the most part, it's about not having certain things. It's about not having refined carbohydrates, not having ultra processed foods, not having these bad vegetable oils. The second to last question, I think, uh, Georgia here is when you're looking at your plate and building out like your meals for yourself, like I know for me that oftentimes I look for a high quality protein and a vegetable. And honestly, I think about just not having any crappy ingredients or not having packaged foods a lot of time. And that's kind of how I oftentimes go about looking at building out my plate. Are there particular things that you look for when you're thinking about what am I going to cook for dinner tonight? Like what are the different qualities of what makes maybe a healthy plate for you? 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, not everybody needs to eat exactly what I do. Everyone's a little bit different. And I have some food sensitivities that limit the, the uh, types and amounts of plant foods that I can have. And even some of the animal foods that I can have. I don't do well with eggs. I don't do well with dairy. I don't do well with pork and processed meats. There are I have many food sensitivities. So that, that helps me to, because the, the reason why the food sensitivities have been helpful to me is because I wanted to understand a lot more about those foods. And so I really have learned a lot more, but I find food very fascinating. And mm -hmm. so I dive into a lot of different um, uh, uh, facts and uh, that I, I think people will find interesting about different foods. But, um, but I don't think that everyone needs to or will want to eat exactly the way I do. Um, I happen to eat a diet that's um, at times pure carnivore and at other times more carnivore-ish, meaning I put in some plant foods that, that, that agree relatively well with me. So, right. and everyone's a little different. So one of the things I do in the book is I, is I, um, uh, I have a drawing in the book that shows uh, how you can build out a brain healthy diet and, and personalize it for yourself. And so the core of the diet is uh, some, some high quality animal foods. And then the next layer of, of the diet on uh, the next, the next ring is uh, the, the plant foods that you tolerate well, the fruits and vegetables that you tolerate well. And that's going to depend on your carbohydrate tolerance. That's going to depend on your gut health. That's going to depend on your food sensitivities. Um, so that's the next layer is the whole, the whole minimally processed animal foods, and then the whole minimally processed uh, fruits and vegetables. And then you, you go out from there, everything else beyond that, that ring, uh, of the, of the, of the animal foods, the meat, seafood, poultry, eggs, um, and the fruits and vegetables, the further out you go from that core, the riskier the foods become in terms of, you know, people's food sensitivities and in terms of, uh, nutritious quality and that, and, uh, whether or not they're going to cause inflammation, uh, whether they're going to cause damaging oxidative stress in your body or, or even, even some toxicities, some plants do have some natural toxins in them that we need to be aware of. So the further you away, you go from that core, the, the, the harder it may be for some people to be able to include a lot of those other foods. And then way on the outside, we have the foods that none of us should be eating because they're really not foods. Uh, these are the, the ultra processed ingredients, the signature ingredients of the standard American, so-called standard American diet, which are the refined carbohydrates, the seed oils, and all of the ultra processed foods. Those are all, you know, if you're thinking about this as kind of a safe planet of food, that's all considered the space junk. You know, you don't want to be touching that at all, or it, as, as, as infrequently as you can possibly stand to do it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I've, and I love the book so much. It, is a jam-packed book it has a good amount of science in it but i love that because you get actually an explanation because i think oftentimes people may might say metabolically flexible they might say insulin resistant they might use these terms but you don't really quite understand what they mean but you do such a great job of simply breaking things down and then also translating into that what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing to make sure those things don't actually end up occurring so you guys need to make sure once the book comes out January 30th that you get change your diet change your mind a powerful plan to improve mood overcome anxiety and protect memory for a lifetime of optimal mental health because it's not just about the way you look it's also about the inside things and, and your mental health and brain health as well um you guys need to make sure you go grab the book you need to make sure you follow 
Dr. Georgia Eat on all the social media platforms. We'll have that stuff linked in the show notes. Um, you can go to diagnose, diagnosisdiet.com to check out her website. Um, any other good place that people should go learn more about you or go to support you? Yeah, so um, I think, and I mean, the, the website has lots of free articles and you know links to videos and things like that. I'm going to start writing again for psychology today. I'm on Twitter, X, whatever you like to call it. Uh, if so, if you want to, if you want to engage with me or ask questions, that's a really, uh, uh, that's a really, uh, I spend quite a bit of time uh, during each week uh, engaging with people, answering questions. So feel free. Um, but uh, yeah, I really, I really hope to hear from from some of your listeners if they are curious to to learn more. I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to write them back if they're on social media. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I, I love the book because there's like, there's a lot of gra graphics in there where you can see what different biomarker levels should be at, right? Like fasting insulin, fasting glucose, HDL cholesterol, all the different things that you have in there that gives like different uh, micronutrients and amino acid profiles that we should be concerned about when we're eating like our high quality animal protein. And then we can go actually select foods that are maybe a little bit higher and those amino acid profiles, so on and so forth. So it's so great and has a lot of great practical things. But the last thing, last question here, Georgia, is that it's a hypothetical question. If you were only able to choose three healthy habits to do the rest of your life, obviously that would not be the case. You can do however many healthy habits you would like to, but if for whatever reason you could only choose three healthy habits that you could do for the rest of your life, then what would those three healthy habits be? Eat a healthy diet and know what that means, <laughs> what it actually means to eat a healthy diet. Exercise regularly and uh, get sunlight. Uh, make sure that you spend some time outdoors at least for 20 minutes in the morning, if nothing else, to set your your circadian rhythms and and your biological clock. Uh, and tr you know, so uh, trying to trying to live a lifestyle that's more in in sync with our biological rhythms. I think those three things are really really important. Awesome, awesome. Well. This was great stuff today. You guys know I read a ton and I'm super curious about all things health and nutrition. And so, you know, I don't say it lightly when I say this book is a gem. Go get this book, change your diet, change your mind, because only if you are aware and informed, does that really fuel your belief about what it is that you're putting in your body and what it is that you're putting in your mouth. So make sure you go grab the book. But Dr. Georgia E, that is all we got today. I really appreciate your time. I really, really enjoyed it, Nick. Thank you so much for your enthusiasm for for health and for helping people, helping people, uh, you know, live a better life. It's been really a lot of fun talking to you, and I'm so glad that you didn't that you appreciated the science in the book because I, I, I struggled with how much to put in, but I want I'm glad that you appreciate that. <laughs> oh, awesome, awesome. Thanks. I hope you all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. The January 22nd 10-week transformation has been officially closed for registration, but the next one won't open for a few more weeks. But in the meantime, try out our one-week free trial at nickcarrier.com slash free trial. So you can try out some of the workouts and you can get a free meal plan. Some of my biggest takeaways today from Dr. Eid are the following. Number one, it's not even as much about what you do eat as it is about what you don't eat for your brain health and mental health. Stay away from refined carbs, vegetable and seed oils, and processed foods if you're looking to improve your metabolic and brain health. Number two, insulin resistance is one of the main causes for so many negative health outcomes, including stress and anxiety, dementia and Alzheimer's, and even heart attacks. Make sure to keep your blood sugar levels regulated to improve your insulin sensitivity. And then third and finally, health is not just about how you look or about the number on the scale. We all know someone, or at least have heard of somebody who has had an out of the blue diagnosis or death, and we thought, but they looked so healthy. 
but the way that you look on the outside isn't often how you look on the inside. So what you eat is not just about how you look, but it's also about what is going on in the inner workings of your biology. What we eat is by far the single most important factor in our mental and physical health, and we have complete control and influence over it. So take it seriously and be intentional about it so you can get closer to your best you.